church, there's a dangerous attitude that's so pervasive in the world right now. And the more and more conversations that I feel it cropping up in, I just keep seeing this red flag just to be careful for us as believers that we don't fall into the same trap, that we don't have this attitude, that we represent something different to the world. You know, we keep wanting to represent Jesus to the world and our conversations. What do we say? How do we talk about racial issues and violence and faith and privilege and oppression? How do we talk about these things? How, how do we act? Well, we want to know. And this attitude is contrary to everything that the Bible teaches. This attitude dehumanizes. This attitude segregates instead of valuing. Instead of seeing each individual person as a person of value and worth and distinct and unique the way God sees us, it generalizes and it categorizes us all. It's often used to vilify others and to exonerate ourselves, but even when it's not being used kind of maliciously or even intentionally, it's sneaky, this thought pattern, it's a lie, it's a trick, it's a trap, and I don't want us to fall into it. The Bible says we're supposed to take every thought captive, right? So when we find those thoughts, those attitudes and beliefs that are influencing us negatively, we're supposed to recognize them. The Bible helps us become aware and then grab a hold of them and uproot them because we don't want those things to make us poor reflections of Christ. We want to represent Jesus well in a world that needs him so much right now. This, this attitude I'm talking about it, it is, is summed up in that phrase, painting with a broad brush. We make categorical comments about, well, you know, Republicans this or Democrats that. We talk about police as a category, as if all are the same, or minorities or blacks or whites or rich or poor, as if every person in those categories is exactly the same. When we do that, we lose the individual value of each person the soul and the worth and the identity. But that's how God sees us as individuals. God doesn't just generally care for the people in the world. He specifically cares about each one. It should be comforting to each of us in this recent time of our isolations to know that God has seen us and he's been with us. The Bible says that he knows the hairs, the number of hairs on everyone's head. Like we are not alone. And God loves us, not as a generic person, or people group, but as an individual, as his child. And he loves us that way. And we're called to love each other that way. So this attitude, this pervasive attitude of treating people as categories is not how Jesus treated people. It's not how God sees us. And it's contrary to what the gospel teaches. And so I want us to just quickly look at some scriptures and think about what the Bible teaches about humanizing and valuing and loving each individual person. This will inform how we have conversations. We all want to, how do I have conversations about race or about violence or about policing or about government or about faith? It seems like landmines. You don't know where to step in each conversation. But if we see each person the way God sees us, and if we treat each person the way Jesus treated them, value, inherent worth, it will give us instruction about how to navigate these things. So we need to represent Christ well. We need to not paint with a broad brush. We need to be like Jesus. You know, consider how Jesus treated people. When he saw Zacchaeus in that tree, he didn't say, well, there's a Jew. He didn't see him just as his race. He didn't say, well, there's a tax collector. He see him by his job or his occupation. He said, there's a man 
who's hungry to know me, who wants to meet me. And he went, he had a meal with him. He got to know him and through him he met all his friends. You know, he, he came to be with sinners, not those already saved. The sick need a doctor, he said, not the well. We need to see ourselves in that light and treat people in that way. That is the gospel. That's how we've been treated by God. And we, in turn, need to reflect and represent Christ in that way. It'll inform so many conversations. It'll keep us on that difficult but narrow road of loving our neighbor when things are complex and confusing. You know, consider other uh, people that Jesus interacted with. When he saw the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he didn't say, well, there's a Samaritan. He didn't see her racially. He didn't say, well, there's a woman. He didn't see him by gender. He just said, there's a, a child of God, my sister, and she wants to know how to worship. She's confused by religions that say different things. And Jesus said, just trust me, I'll give you living water. He says, I know all about you. I know your life. I know you individually, personally. I know the husbands you've had, that the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. But I love you. It was that love despite circumstances. And he, he saw people in their, their circumstances, you know, who they were in their, their gender, their race, their, their job, their occupation, but it didn't define them. What he saw was their value and he loved them. And it reminds me of a quote. I'd like to read it. I've read it before. Uh, it's just one of the most beautiful quotes describing God's valuing of people and how Jesus lived among people. We need to take this to heart. We need to paint with a very fine brush, not the broad brush. And this quote kind of summarizes Jesus' approach. It's a quote by a theologian. His name was Walter Russell Bowie, and he wrote this. He said, Jesus loved them even as they were. He loved them with the warmth of God's own expectation of what they might become. There, in the midst of them, he felt the deep joy of his life's mission, which was, as he said to his critics, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Whenever the fellowship of Jesus, as expressed in the Christian church, lets that supreme motive slip away, it is no longer Christian. I'll read it one more time. If I you take nothing more from this, please hear that quote. The scriptures are going to you know, flesh that out, but this is the heart of it all. Jesus loved them, the people, uh, even as they were. And he loved them with the warmth of God's own expectation of what they might become. There, in the midst of them, he felt the deep joy of his life's mission, which was, as he said to his critics, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Whenever the fellowship of Jesus is expressed in the Christian church, lets that supreme motive slip away, it is no longer Christian. So there's five scriptures that they have to look at. They're all short and to the point. They build upon each other and they paint the picture that we are to love individuals with God's own love for their potential. Whether or not they are realizing that or not, whether they are living to that or not, because at one time we were not, and God loved us anyway. So we start with Christ. It's just a couple of verses. It's from the Gospel of Luke. It's chapter 23, verse uh, 32 and following. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't see the soldiers crucifying just as soldiers. He didn't see them just as Romans. He didn't just see them as villains. He had compassion in that moment that they were killing him. He said, forgive them because they don't know what they do. He recognized they were caught up in the mob, caught up in ignorance, caught up in sin, caught up in what we get caught up in, ignorance and sin. He asked God to forgive them for their actions because he saw to the heart of the soldiers. He said, God, Father, please give them mercy because they can't even see what they don't see. Love them despite the group that they're in, crucifying soldiers. Love them despite their sinful behavior in this moment. What would it look like for us to have an attitude like that instead of vilifying? What if we were praying for violent police with criminal behavior? What if we were praying for people growing up in poor or criminal environments and exhibiting those behaviors. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're caught up in something larger than themselves. They're caught up in sin, which is a powerful force. And if we think that we can just opt out of sin on our own, that's a salvation by works. Okay, I'll just decide to no longer have sinful thoughts. I'll decide to no longer commit sins. That's not how it works. We need to rely upon the grace of God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so Jesus was acting out his mission of grace. And in the process, recognizing the humanity and the power of sin that was compelling these people beyond what they even understood. What would it look like for us to speak prayers of forgiveness? The soldiers, I think, thought they knew what they were doing. The, the racial conflicts in our country and you know, violent riots. We, we believe these people know what they're doing, acting with intent. Well, well, so did they. But Jesus saw through that. And he said, sin is more powerful than you even understand. Father, have mercy. And it's that mercy that changes. There was one guard there after Jesus dies. He said, wow, this really was the Son of God. That sacrificial mercy, that prayer, the loving of those, even our enemies, that will change lives. If we act and speak with that attitude, it will change lives. So let's build upon this. Um, yeah, Ephesians chapter 6 speaks to this in talking about the armor of God. Uh, Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, not our own strength. Be strong in the strength of His might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against powers in this present darkness, against forces of evil in heavenly places. Like, we need God's armor so that we don't fall to these same things. But our fight is not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. Other people aren't our enemy. The forces that are compelling them, the evils that they are trapped in, that they are participating in, those are the problems. You know, to say it bluntly, the racist isn't the root of the problem. Racism is the root of the problem. And there, but for the grace of God, go, I, I don't want to exhibit racist behaviors. So, Father, God, help me put on the armor of God so that I don't slip into those same things because I'm just a person like that person and I would have a heart that that person would see. 
the dangerous evil of racism and want to get that power, that, that compulsion, that, that lie, that trap that he or she is stuck in and uproot it so that they may be set free. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. We don't fight against other people. We fight against the forces that control them. And we need God's protection, armor, against how we think, how we act, how we live. Truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, readiness, right? God's word. We're not exempt from the human struggle. We're being delivered from the power of sin by God's strength and by Christ's death. That's the gospel. And so the minute that we say that others are willingly choose this and they can willingly unchoose sin, we act as if we can work our way into righteousness instead of praying our way into it, confessing our way into it, repenting our way into it. That's the only way we get to heaven. That's the only way we get to redemption is confession. It's not pride and arrogance and, you know, self-will. Those are part of our problems. Those are not God's solution. We build upon this. Paul gives advice to uh, Timothy as he's mentoring him. In 2 Timothy 2, 23, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they just breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, the Christian, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, but with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth so they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the follower of God is supposed to be gentle, praying that God helps someone who's stuck in sinful patterns to come to their senses to see it because they're just stuck. We're not hating someone stuck in those patterns. We're recognizing that it's a trap. It's a lie. The attitude of they versus us, them versus we. Like, I would never, but they. It's a defense mechanism, and it's a blinder to sin, and it's a trap, and we can all get stuck in it. So we are to pray, God, please grant us the ability to see what you see, to love the way you love. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So it takes us to Romans, where some of the most clearly defined definitions of what the gospel is. We're going to look at Romans 2 and then Romans 5. This is our faith. This is how we're to treat people. This is how we're to speak. This is to influence our thoughts. This is to influence our attitudes against and for and with and in terms of all these issues. Romans 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges another. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. God is the judge. No one actually gets away with anything. So do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience 
in well-doing. They seek for glory, God's glory, and for honor and immortality. He'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, both the Jew and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. So it doesn't matter what your nationality is. If you're seeking for God, he will lead you into that. And when we presume upon his patience, we say, why do they do this? Why do they? We don't recognize that we do those same things. Why do people act ignorantly? We act ignorantly. Why do people act in anger? We act in anger. But we are being delivered by God from those forces of evil. We are not the enemy either. And neither is the man or woman or child or person that we find ourselves in opposition with. The enemy are those forces of evil, the sin which so easily entangles us. We need to pray against sinful patterns, against behaviors. We need to not paint with a broad brush and say, all people this, all people this, all white this, all black this. No, humans, sin, God, faith, they're the basic categories. Every person is our brother and sister, and we need to pray that if they're caught in sinful patterns, God will deliver them and that God will have mercy on them. And we need to pray, God, forgive us for our sins. Have mercy upon us. That's the heart of the gospel. If we demand that others behave better, then we're denying the power of sin. We're claiming a salvation by works is possible. And that's what we believe. I don't believe that I can make myself better or save myself or perfect my own actions. I need to fall back into God's arms and say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Transform me into the person you've created me to be. Love me with the warmth of God's own expectation of what I might become. So it brings us to our, our final scripture. It's Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. A person will scarcely ever die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good enough person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, we've been forgiven by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We need to love our enemies so they may experience the grace of God and have their hearts be softened by impact of God's love. That's the path to salvation. That's what God did for us. If we're waiting for people to change, we're waiting for sin to be removed, well, we're waiting for Jesus to come back for that. That time has not yet come, and it may come, and it may come soon. But we want to be ready when it does. But in the meantime, we need to live the way Christ lived. 
that while others are yet sinning, that we pray Jesus' prayer on the cross, God, forgive them and sacrifice ourselves to love them. Because sin is blinding. It's a trick. It's a trap. It's a lie. And we all get stuck in it. And we need God to set us free, to open our eyes and set us free. Romans 12, 2 says it perfectly, and I'll close with this. Let us not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we may know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you want to know, do I want to know what to say in these tense and, and pressurized conversations. We need to know God's will of what to say. We need to stop conforming to the way the powers of this world want us to think. Us versus them. No. Every human. Brotherhood of all people. My brother, my sister. And all of us fighting equally against the power of sin. The only difference between believers is that we've seen it. We've had our eyes opened. We said, God, help us to step out of the trap because we're stuck and only you can do it. So I pray that you would take this good news, this gospel into your conversations, into your actions, that you would love those who are opposed to you, that we would teach this concept of seeing each one as an individual, loving each one regardless of positions or groups or stances or attitudes and that we would not let this attitude of painting with a broad brush creep into our speech, into our words, into our actions. May we love the way Jesus did, each person, each moment, individually. May we love with God's love.